and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Hausman, your host for New Books in the American West. Today, I'm talking to Darren Frederick Spies. Dr. Spies is a history teacher and assistant dean of students at Sidwell Friends School in Washington, D.C., and is the author of Defending Giants, The Redwood Wars and the Transformation of American Environmental Politics, which came out in 2017 and is part of the University of Washington Press's vaunted Warehouser Environmental Books series. Darren, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you very much, Steve. Thanks for having me. To begin, why don't we just start by having you talk a little bit about yourself? How did you get involved in history in the first place, and what is your background in the field? Gotcha. I think I've, I've always had a, a deep interest in natural history, in politics, and society. Um, as an undergrad, I studied geology at Southern Methodist University and Humboldt State University, and uh, and I started studying geology because of my interest in like the history of the earth and natural systems. Um, and it just seemed really cool. And I actually, I left SMU after my junior year of college and transferred to Humboldt state, um, which I think is probably the only such transfer in the history of huh. those two institutions. Um, <laughs> I, decided, I decided that I wasn't going to uh, wind up playing soccer for a career. And I knew that I did not want to be a Texas oil geologist and so I decided I was going to leave SMU and the department chair there, Bob Gregory, who is also uh, my boss. I worked in this thing called the Stable Isotope Lab, um, burning, you know, burning basically like, you know, nuclear materials in order to melt rocks down and figure out what the oxygen components were of it. But he was my the chair and my boss there. And um, knowing my interest in kind of environmental geology um, and he suggested that I look at Humboldt State, a place that I had never heard of in my entire life. Um, and he suggested it because his grad school roommate was the chair at Humboldt State. And he knew they were doing all sorts of interesting contemporary geology work um, around tectonic plates and earthquake geology. Um, and he thought that might interest me more than kind of Texas sedimentology. Um, and, uh, and I actually it wound up being like the, the, best, the, the best decision that I made in my undergraduate career. I loved my time at HSEO. Um, I loved the geology. I loved the ecology. I, I loved the department. And, and I loved the small town. And when I graduated, I decided I really wasn't interested in pursuing academic geology. And so um, I began running uh, door-to-door canvas operations for a nonprofit group affiliated with, with PERG, the Public Interest Research Groups, and partnered with the Sierra Club and the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance and the Human Rights Campaign and other progressive groups. And after seven years of doing that, I decided to go back to grad school so I could teach and write which had always been kind of a long-standing interest of mine. And I thought about political science, but as I looked into the programs, um, it seemed to me they were far more math-heavy than what really interested me. Um, I wanted to tell stories about human experiences, and so I, I set my eyes on, uh, set my sights on um, history departments. Um, and in my applications, I pitched um, a dissertation project about Headwaters Forest. And I did that because Woody Holton, who's the um, American historian of the revolutionary period, Woody Holton used to work for this same uh, nonprofit group when he got out of undergraduate. And so we had this connection of of him preceding me of leaving this group and going back to working on uh, a doctoral program. And he's at a, he was a professor at Richmond at the University of Richmond at the time. And so I called Woody and asked him for some advice and asked him, 
all right, what do I, what should I do as I'm applying to these grad schools seven years out and in a totally different field from uh, what I had studied as an undergrad? And he had suggested that because I would be a both an unusual student um, and a non-traditional one, that I pitch very spe- a very specific kind of research pro- project um, so that the grad school committees would kind of understand that this wasn't like some mid-career crisis that I had thought this through and that I wanted to uh, pursue and work on a very discreet project. And so I thought for you know a few weeks about what would I want to like research and study, and I kept coming back to um, Headwaters Forest and wanting to understand better understand what happened and why. Um, during the time that I lived there and, you know, how over the previous hundred years, you know, the county got to the place where um, something like a a protracted and violent environmental conflict over a forest could have taken place. And so I wrote this um, grad school application pitching this project about Headwaters Forest and the controversies over logging the giant redwoods. Um, um, uh, And also because I really, I wanted to share kind of this magical part of the world with people. Um, And so that's how I kind of got into history. Um, When I, when I wrote those applications in that, in that, that my um, wrote my application, I thought I was going to wind up telling a story about, you know, big campaign money in politics and the problems environmentalists encountered when doing battle to protect forests, a story of kind of tree sits and, and backdoor deals of a sorts. Um, and I think Bob Gregory, to get back to kind of this, the, how I got into history, Bob Gregory, who was, the, again, the chair of the geology department at SMU, I asked him to write a recommendation for these the, for grad school and I, he showed me his letter and i thought it was hilarious because he began it with darren's been trained in history um during all of his undergraduate work geology after all is just the history of the earth on a very long time scale huh. Huh, that's good <laughs> and i thought oh good kudos bob good job so anyway that's how i got interested and involved in history and i wound up at the university of maryland um to work at the in the graduate program there uh, in part because I met with um, the now late great Ira Berlin, the historian of slavery, and I was so enamored, even though it wasn't in my field, I was so enamored with him uh, when I met him. He was so kind of just earnest and so generous. Um, and, and I met a few other folks at the time, Jim Gilbert and Severio Giovacchini, none of whom were in kind of the fields that I was interested in, uh, but who all took time out of their days to meet with me as, you know, some near 30 year old wanting to apply to grad schools. And I, uh, and I really kind of forged a connection with that department and, you know, and, and wound up matriculating and, and going through that great program. I've, I've asked that question about uh, people's backgrounds to maybe, you know, 15 or 20 guests now at this point. This is the first time that nuclear isotopes have come up. So that was a, that's a good, interesting path. I like that. I'm gl- good, glad I could entertain. <laughs> so you talked about this a little bit. You mentioned your time at Humboldt State, for instance. But in the book's introduction, you talk about your personal connection to the California Redwoods. Can you tell us a bit about how you became interested in them and their ecology and in the Redwood Wars more generally? Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, of course, it's, it's it's almost impossible to live on the north coast of California and not kind of not be not be gripped by the trees themselves, right? The giant redwoods are what have captivated humans 
presumably for thousands of years now. And they're, they're certainly what first captured my attention upon moving to the North Coast in 1995. Um, in a, my first experience was driving down the 101 in the what seemed to me like at the t- now looking back on it, like the middle of the night it's pitch black it was it was uh january and it's the which is the rainy season it was pouring down rain there's no real lights on the 101 and i remember driving through and not knowing it at the time but was driving through redwood national park and prairie creek redwood state park um and looking out the out of the passenger side window of the car and noticing that there was like an entire herd of giant elk basically standing on the shoulder of the highway and being freaked out about the proximity of what seemed like 50 to 100 uh, Roosevelt elks standing like next to the highway waiting for me to pass so they could cross. Uh, but being struck by um, the rainforests, um, being struck by the the geology and the geography of the place and then it also happened that my arrival coincided with one of the rowdier periods of the redwood wars wars um though no one called them than that at the time i started seeing flyers all over campus promoting um, a rally to protect hidewaters forest a place i never heard of and knew nothing about and, and curious um i attended um, it was little did I it, it, little did I know at the time it was the it was the largest anti-logging rally in, in U.S. history. About two thousand people showed up that spring of um, uh, that fall of 1995. Um, and Bob Weir and Mickey Hart um, spoke and played members of the Grateful Dead. And um, I was uh, one of the reasons why I was out west was because of the the Grateful Dead. I had. When I left SMU, I took a semester off and went to go see every single Grateful Dead show in 1994 uh, before I before I went back to, to Humboldt State. And Bonnie Raitt and Ed Bagley Jr. all kind of spoke and performed. And, uh, and I remember getting to the rally, uh, which was adjacent to Pacific Lumber Company property. Um, we had to walk down about a half mile down a, a rural road outside of Carlotta, and there were anti- anti-rally protesters kind of forming a gauntlet on the sides of the road. And I remember the anger and the yelling. Um, and I remember just the stark difference between that gauntlet and then the atmosphere of the rally site itself with, you know, Bob Weir and Mickey Hart playing. And there seemed to be a much more jovial kind of atmosphere, despite the kind of urgency of it. And after the rally, um, I continued to hike in Redwood country learning about its landscapes and ecosystems, both as a part of my geology program, but also just, you know, as, as someone who is interested in the outdoors and interested in natural history. And I attended the a 1996 rally, the same, the next September, where there were 6,000 people um, that showed up. And I was completely sympathetic um, to the cause of protecting Headwaters Forest, but I did little aside from attending those rallies. Um, frankly, I was too chicken to ever get arrested for trespassing. Um, <laughs> instead, I volunteered on a campaign finance reform initiative, Proposition 212, uh, that was on the ballot that fall. Um, and I thought that would help protect places uh, like Headwaters Forest by reducing the political influence of the nation's largest companies. But mostly I kind of was into my geology, uh, uh, my geology studies and into kind of the hiking and recreation along the coast and on the redwoods. And little I did not know it at the time, but my now wife was also at 
um, that 1996 rally. So another interesting kind of thing that we figured out as a part of me working on this book. She was uh, she worked at University of California, Davis. And when I started talking about this, she's like, wait, I was there, too. Um, so somewhere in that crowd um, was my was my future wife as well, though. We didn't meet for another couple of years after that. So let's get into the book a bit and let's start by talking about the setting. Um, tell us a bit about the north coast of California, particularly the ecology of that part of the West, as well as what it was like culturally, um, especially in the second half of the 20th century. Sure. It is a, it's simply put, it's a rugged coastal region. So the three counties that really make up the North Coast are Mendocino, Humboldt, and Del Norte. And they're the three most northern um, coast range kind of thrust itself in many places right out of the Pacific Ocean. It's the only place where the, um, where the, uh, uh, the tech, where the North American plate and the fault lines uh, uh, actually emerge on land um, um, off of the Pacific Northwest, so at the Cape of, of Mendocino. Um, and it's damp and damp and damp along the coast. It's a temperate rainforest. It's super rainy in the winter, the kind of pineapple express that comes out of the Pacific and hits the um, hits the Bay Area, also dumps tons and tons of rain on the north coast of California. And that coastal area is dominated by redwood forest. Um, the largest redwoods grow in the kind of alluvial flats in the and the river valleys that cut across the coast range. Um, and farther as you go up in altitude, the redwoods get a little bit smaller, and there's also more uh, variety in the kinds of, of species and underbrush that grow with, with dug fir and tan oaks and Sitka spruces. Um, east of the coast range, it's hot and dry in the summertime. Um, there could be a difference of where it's 68 degrees along the coast in June. It might be 90 to 95 degrees just 10 miles to the east on the other side of the coast range. Um, and so it's hot and dry on the east side of the range, except along the river valleys where the thick, dense summer fogs get sucked up into the interior of the region. So along those kind of those river valleys and those alluvial flats, um, um, giant redwoods tend to grow back deeper than, than you would normally expect. Um, uh, and the region is, is really very rural. Um, Eureka is the largest town in the three counties, and it has about 27,000 people in it. So it's a sparsely populated um, region, um, economically dominated by timber, fishing, um, ranching, and, of course, marijuana growing. Um, and then there's a smattering of kind of older back-to-the-landers um, living out um, in the kind of rural rugged hills. Um, David Harris, who... Um, is an author, um, one of the husbands of a uh, former husband of Joan Baez. He, when I spoke to him, and he said it to other people as well, but uh, when I spoke to him about the kind of North Coast of California, he, he told me from his perspective, it looked like only two types of people lived up there. Those who looked like they just got out of the Marines and those that looked like they just got out of a Grateful Dead concert, um, which I think is fairly kind of apt. I mean, it's simplistic, obviously, but, you know, so it's a rural place and it's both deeply conservative and deeply progressive as well. Um, it's a really kind of a blue collar in rural county and, and HSU with its 8,000-ish students has an outsized influence on the region intellectually. 
So that's a little bit of the lay of the land. And you do a really good job in the book of, of kind of, paint of a, painting a picture of the place. And um, the way you described it really it kind of shot up the list of places that I want to visit after, uh, after finishing your book. Um, Perfect. So as you say in Defending Giants, in order to understand the later 20th century history of the Redwood Wars, we got to go back further into the 19th century and early 20th century history of logging in the region. So can you tell us about the, what you describe as the three eras of logging on California's north coast? Yeah, so there's uh, the, the three eras. Um, the first era is I refer to as the American invasion in industrialization. And, and I pin that to 1850 until 1914. So the California gold rush until World War I. Um, and during that first era uh, was really kind of a, a free-for-all. Um, this was a period where um, white Americans of European descent were moving into California for in large numbers um, and moving to uh, moving and looking to the North Coast um, first in efforts to try to find gold in the Trinity Alps region um, in discovering these giant trees and deciding that they would log and sell them, um, especially in kind of the growing city of San Francisco, where um, a lot of the money and infrastructure coming out of the gold rush was being deposited. And they ran into, um, as you might imagine, for 19th century technology, some significant problems of trying to figure out how to log these giant trees that can be, you know, 25 feet in diameter and 375 feet tall, how to successfully and efficiently log them and transport them. And so this is a period of sheer volumes of, of man hours and manpower working in the forest. Um, and also then some pretty serious innovation trying to figure out how to move them around. So first using teams of oxen to kind of move them along skid roads. And, and, um, and so much of the coast was is cliffs that also getting them to boats to transport was a problem. And, and off the coast of California, or Mendocino in particular, they developed these kind of – built these chutes that went out in, over the water. And they were literally launched these giant logs – down these um, basically um, uh, like a, fl- a flume and launch them out into the water uh, where a waiting schooner would sit and they could then kind of hoist them into the boat and sail them to San Francisco. And, and over time, then they began to develop steam engine kind of bull donkeys and steam donkeys and railroads to move them around. So this first period was a period of um, of really the kind of development of the redwood lumber industry and the technologies that it would use to kind of clear um, the forest from uh, San Francisco up to the North Coast. The second era that I described, as I referred to it as the era of stabilization, and that's uh, 1914 to 1955, this period from World War One until the, the middle of the 1950s. And during that period, I refer to it as stabilization um, primarily because the relationships between the state of California or among the state of California and the growing redwood preservation movement and the timber companies kind of settled into a, a set of routines um, um, revolving around figuring out which parcels of land would be logged and which would not be logged. And there was this period of, of kind of quiet, genteel negotiations where 
wealthy philanthropers and wealthy donors would contribute to groups like the, the Save the Redwoods League, who would then try to identify um, some of the most kind of exquisite, as they would refer to them, um, uh, spe specimens of and groves of giant trees and approach the landowners and figure out who was a willing seller and try to buy up little groves to kind of save them um, from logging. And that kind of worked for those periods of years. And then after 1955, I refer to that era as the, the era of transformation, um, where that genteel kind of relationship um, uh, was, uh, was kind of torn apart, was literally blown up by 1990, um, um, as well as metaphorically. Um, and and it, this was an era of much more kind of interest, citizen interest, much more agitation from citizens who were clamoring, not a kind of genteel arrangement around protecting small groves of trees, but wanted fundamentally the nature of the timber industry to change in Northern California to account for ecological health and account for the, um, the health of entire ecosystems and not just small groves of giant trees. And one important concept throughout the entire history that you just described of the California timber industry is the concept of corporatism. What is the corporatist theory of resource management and how did it develop into sort of the dominant ideology within California forestry? So corporatism, um, as I use it and as I think about in terms of forestry regulation in California uh, came from the historian um, Ellis Hawley, who described this arrangement of the progressive period, the kind of broader progressive period in America, whereby the, the, the primary goal of the state with respect to businesses was achieving kind of stable growth. Um, they weren't interested in kind of hyper-competitive markets. The primary goal was trying to figure out how do you develop an economy stably that grows over a long period of time that can provide a lot of jobs and provide revenue for the kind of region. And the corporatist model of kind of regulation that then emerged out of there and that California in particular with respect to forestry really embraced was this idea that the experts in the industry ought to be the ones to figure out the rules of the game, um, kind of like a a creating an official kind of cartel of sorts, um, not unlike, you know, the war industry board during World War One um, um, or the various kinds of regulatory boards that they ex that the nation experimented with um, uh, to prepare for World War One and to, to manage World War One. But here what the idea was, was, OK, the timber industry knows the conditions of the north coast of California best. They know the technology. They know their labor needs. They know the markets. They know the pricing. Uh, what we ought to do is hand over regulation of their industry to them so that they can cooperate with each other to create an environment that was, uh, uh, that was ripe for growth and that would create a kind of stable, uh, a stable market and a stable industry over the long run. Um, and that's why the, the Board of Forestry initially, and for the first almost, for the first almost 100 years of its existence, um, primarily focused on things like, you know, 
providing um, uh, providing penalties for trespassers um, or to providing resources for fire um, fighting fires in redwood country of which there are obviously very few but um, um, and so that's the kind of basis of the corporatist model this idea of self regulation by those who are experts in the industry in order to promote stability and in growth and one of the major players in uh, the the Northern California timber industry and in the book is the Pacific Lumber Corporation. Tell us about them, their role in Northern California, and particularly how they positioned themselves in the region, um, particularly in the early to mid 20th century, in the first two logging stages that you described. Sure. So the Pacific Lumber Company is most associated with um, the Murphy family. Uh, and the Murphy family was from Maine. Um, uh, Simon Jones Murphy was kind of the patriarch of this uh, of this logging empire. He was uh, he is from Maine. They um, they before it was the Murphy family owned logging operations in Maine and then in Wisconsin in the Northwoods when the uh, when the woods of uh, Northwoods of Maine had been depleted. They moved to Wisconsin and began logging operations there. Um, they also purchased um, an iron field and iron mines in Michigan, um, built railroads and purchased railroads. They built an electricity plant that became the Detroit Edison Company. Um, Henry Ford was the engineer for the Detroit Energy, uh, um, uh, the D- Detroit Edison Company that the Murphys ran, um, and he convinced Simon Jones Murphy uh, to begin producing what he was calling Ford Mobiles, so the precursors to the Model T and the Model A, um, and the Murphy family um, invested in building automobiles out of Detroit in the late 19th century. Um, Ford left because he didn't like the the models that they were producing and and so they then changed the name of the company to Cadillac. So this is the the, the Murphy family is a family you know with deep roots in kind of American industrialization and American um, uh, technology. And 1860 became Pacific Lumber Company was founded when a bunch of people in California bought some land um, up uh, near Eureka and started logging it. The Murphys enter the kind of the county literally and figuratively in 1902 when they bought out um, the owners of, of that property and incorporated in Maine as the Pacific Lumber Company in 1905 and then moved its headquarters to Detroit. Um, uh, at the time, it was the largest redwood logging company in Humboldt County, um, and it was a really kind of modern industrial operation. Uh, with uh, a railroad and with a fleet of ships and 1,500 workers and, and rapidly expanding. Um, and the Murphys continued that kind of modernization um, and continued to incorporate Pacific Lumber into its kind of diverse holdings. Um, and, and, and they emerged as this, um, as this really kind of potent force. And they emerged as a potent force in, in Humboldt County um, for what I think is a really kind of uh, interesting from an interesting business strategy um, after World War one um, when there was this you know initial kind of logging and boom craze uh, a boom in, in, in logging um, the Pacific Lumber Company kind of scaled back its clear cutting and they were further encouraged to scale back their clear cutting because of the, the Great Depression. But even after the Great Depression, 
um, and after World War II, during the housing boom of the post-war period, the Pacific Lumber Company resisted um, a, a large-scale clear-cutting, and they continued to selectively harvest. They like to tout it as a part of their kind of conservation ethos, and I think that was that, that there's some truth to that. They, during the interwar period, were active um, participants in creating the um, Humboldt State Redwoods, uh, the Humboldt Redwood State Park and the Avenue of the Giants, and they donated land and they sold land um, as a part of it. But also, this was, I think, a savvy kind of business strategy for them. I, the, from reading the Pacific Lumber Company annual reports, it, be, reports, it became rather clear to me that they viewed ancient red non-renewable source, recognizing that you know it took a thousand or two thousand years to grow a giant redwood, and so for from a human company's perspective, they rather are kind of not non-renewable resources, and their business strategy was designed to hang on to as many of those giant redwoods as possible while other people were liquidating their inventories of them so that the as the prices for old growth redwood lumber would rise uh, would increase and the scarcity of giant redwoods um, would ex- would increase they would be able to capitalize and profit from it um, and and so it put them in a really unique position come the kind of 1960s and 1970s um, when uh, after the kind of burst of activity to create all of the Redwood State Parks and Redwood National Park um, and the protection of, you know, 100 plus thousand acres of ancient redwoods, they were then the kind of really the last big player and the last kind of big name left in in redwood logging. And also involved in this equation, you have various activist groups. But tell us, before kind of getting into the the latter half of the 20th century, tell us about some of the earlier attempts to save redwoods from logging, um, particularly before the kind of transformation period after 1970 or so. Sure. um, There are two kind of super important groups. One was this group called the Semper Virens Club, which was founded in 1900 by a bunch of kind of Bay Area professionals, uh, William Dudley, uh, um, uh, who worked at Stanford, and, a, and a, some other folks of the Sierra Club kind of ilk. Um, and they had begun kind of agitating, right? All of the, in the late 18, in, by the 1880s, really the kind of old growth redwoods around the Bay Area had largely been kind of logged as San Francisco and Berkeley and Oakland were, were developing. And Um, And so they were looking for places to kind of preserve and protect for kind of the public interest for recreation, for health um, in the model of of the kind of park movement at the time. And they had pointed towards this place, Big Basin, kind of near the Santa Cruz in the mountains and near Santa Cruz um, in San Jose. Um, uh, And in 1900, there was this incident at Welch's Big Trees Grove, which was a private campground. And a photographer, Andrew Hill, was taking photos of these giant redwoods. And the owner of the campground um, came and told him to stop taking pictures, that it was private property and that he wasn't he didn't have permission to um, to take photographs of these giant trees and he needed to get out. And it kind of spurred Andrew Hill um, to to 
work with William Dudley and Carrie Stevens and other folks in the Bay Area to create a public place, a place where the public was welcome, that was managed for the public, for the public. Um, and they created what, what I liken to really the, a, a, a modern kind of environmental campaign. And the, the effort that they waged in that 1900 to 1901 really resembles a lot of what we might see today. So Andrew Hill had all of these photographs. And he would take them up to um, Sacramento to the General Assembly and put on these displays and show legislators um, the, exactly what this kind of the big basin area and these giant trees looked like. And they had editorials and articles um, um, written on their behalf to, to agitate in the public. They brought in um, scientific experts to, um, to lobby with them in the Sacramento State House. Um, and uh, right, and they orchestrated this entire campaign to convince the General Assembly to um, to appropriate money to buy land from a private landowner to turn it into a state park. Um, and and that's exactly what happened, right? They, the 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 state assembly and the governor signed a bill um, to create the state of California's first state park. Big Basin Redwood State Park, um, and it became the model for how these Redwood State Parks would be created for the next 60-plus years, um, even longer. Um, and so they would identify places to um, places that they wanted to turn into public spaces, and because – um, after the gold rush, all of the and after the Mexican War, most of the land in, in Northern California had been turned over to private individuals. They had to figure out how to buy this property from private individuals and convince them to sell it, and then donate it to the state to turn it into a state park. So that was kind of the that's the this, the origins of the Redwood State Park system in California, um, in the Bay Area, and then. From a national perspective, this group league is founded in in uh, you know, Bohemian Club retreat, where uh, uh, th- where a few individuals from the Bohemian Club from out east, Madison Grant um, uh, and Fairfield um, in particular, wanted to go visit the giant redwoods. Um, the Redwood Highway had just opened up, and so they went took a car and drove from the Bay Area and drove north because they wanted to see giant redwoods. And what they discovered was um, utter kind of destruction that there was a um, that logging on the north coast of California was rather kind of wanton. And instead of amazing kind of beautiful scenery and forests that they were driving through, they saw hills just ravaged by logging. And so they formed the Save the Redwoods League to try to marshal the resources of wealthy donors in New York and San Francisco to buy up as many groves of ancient redwoods as possible. And that's through the efforts of Save the Redwoods League in particular, were how much of the rest of the um, California State Redwood Park system uh, was created. Humboldt Redwoods was the Humboldt Redwood State Park and Avenue of the Giants was able to kind of be procured because they got John D. Rockefeller Jr. to donate money to purchase it um, uh, at the in the during the during the Great Depression, uh, and they then would donate to the state park. And over the course of that kind of interwar period of stabilization. 
the Save the Redwoods League worked with the Pacific Lumber Company and other redwood logging companies to buy pieces of, of, of land and turn them into state parks. But as you describe, that period of stabilization ends, and there is this kind of transformative period after World War II where new groups start to come into the area sporting new styles of activism. Um, and you describe it as kind of blowing apart the earlier relationship between activists and logging companies and workers. Can you describe these changes and what it meant for the, the North Coast of California? Yeah, it, it created a... a it, I, I kind of look at it in, in, from two perspectives. It created a much more antagonistic relationship or series of sets of relationships um, on the North Coast between regulators and c- private citizens and logging companies. And it also um, procured Redwood National Park, for instance, as a part of that process. And, and in the book, uh, I the, the the incident that kind of solidified this beginning of of the transformation for me was the winter floods of 1955 and this place Bull Creek, which is now a part of well was a part of is off of the off of the Avenue of the Giants and a part of the Humboldt Redwoods State Park. Uh, this beautiful grow, alluvial kind of groves um, along Bull Creek and in these huge. Huge winter rains in, 19, in, in 1955 led to a giant mudslide destroying a, a hillside of giant redwoods. And the park rangers described them as looking like toothpicks being scattered across the watershed. And the thing that was transformative about that incident was it wasn't the initial act of logging that required that that caused the destruction, right? These giant redwoods along the Bull Creek watershed had fallen, not from directly from the chainsaw, but indirectly, because up above them and beyond them in the watershed, watershed was a series of clear cuts um, that Pacific Lumber had, ha, um, uh, Pacific Lumber had cleared in the 1940s. And so that denuded hillside then gave away in these rains, and that mudslide then destroyed these protected trees inside of Humboldt Redwood State Park. And so it caused folks in the Sierra Club in particular to kind of look at the situation a little bit differently and to say, okay, see, the problem is not just stopping logging in some places. The problem is the whole way that logging is done. It endangers even places where the trees are supposed to be protected. And so it started um, the Sierra Club on the path towards thinking about industrial logging reform and regulation and having the state play a much heavier and much larger role in telling companies not only where they could do their business, but how they could carry out their business. Um, and David Brower, who becomes the executive direct, the first executive director of the Sierra Club um, in 1952, was obviously pivotal um, in that. And so it, it, there's this time period where he's a much more kind of aggressive leader of the Sierra Club. He's gotten engaged with the fights over Dinosaur National Monument and the dams there, and he's figured out how to agitate the public and how to uh, um, advocate on behalf of ecosystems writ large and not just 
uh, uh, um, not just kind of exemplary um, uh, uh, um, kind of individuals of a species, but entire kind of species and entire ecosystems. And once they start to uh, start to advocate for and agitate on behalf of larger ecosystem protections and ecosystem health, um, then right then you've now all of a sudden changed the parameters of the relationship between the state and these timber companies who had mostly been told, do what you want to do. You're the experts, but here, let's carve out a few spaces where we can save giant redwoods for the public to see. Um, now, all of a sudden, that is uh, is increasingly kind of under threat because it's the from the company's perspective, it's moving the goal line, as we would kind of now say, right? That it's not just do what you want where you want, except for here. It's oh, now we have to look at the ways in which you do it. Um, is what you're doing actually doing damage to the ecosystem and to the giant redwood ecosystem itself and if so then maybe we're going to have to mandate that you change it so i want to jump ahead a little bit and talk about two real turning points in the the kind of growing battle over redwoods in the 1970s and 1980s the first is the Sally Bell Grove battle, which you describe in the book as the first major battle of the Redwood Wars. And then the second one, if you could kind of talk about it in concert with that, is the takeover in the 1980s of Pacific Lumber by Maxam. Can you tell us about these two events and why they mark such uh, important changes in the, in the, the wars themselves? Sure thing. So the Sally Bell Grove um, was a... Um, a stand of trees along the Pacific coast in northern Mendocino County um, near the Cinchione Wilderness, uh, Wilderness Park. And it, was, it became this incredibly important place, an incredibly important battle, primarily because it happened to be near where a whole bunch of 1960s Bay Area refugees had kind of fled the civil rights movement or fled um, the Haight-Ashbury scene or in many cases fled the East Coast um, looking for a new way to kind of live. And so these were back to the, in the rugged kind of Lost Coast region of Northern California. And in the 1970s, um, especially in Mendocino County, a lot of the local timber companies have been bought up and were being the process being bought up by Georgia Pacific and Louisiana Pacific, two large multinational corporations. And, and the local back to the landers, um, folks like Richard Ginger and Robert Sutherland, uh, also known as the man who walks in the woods and Cecilia Landman grew increasingly concerned about um, the consolidation of property under these big giant timber companies and they discovered that um, georgia pacific had filed a timber harvest plan for this place that became known as sally bell grove it was a wedge um literally a wedge of green a wedge of redwoods on the western slope of the coast range on all three sides uh, all three sides around this grove had been logged. It had previously been known as um, Little Jackass Creek. 
Um, <laughs> and I think they decided that they decided that wasn't a very they didn't think that many people could be um, um, galvanized to to try to protect a place called Little Jackass. Um, <laughs> but so here's this uh, this kind of keystone kind of plate that on this ridge on this really fragile hill slope mountain slope leading into the pacific ocean and it's the thing holding this hillside together and so they decided that really they needed to both stop this timber harvest plan and work to get it included in the sinkione wilderness area uh, to protect that hillside uh, and to protect that grove of ancient redwoods and they named it the sally bell grove um, after um, a local story about the last of the uh, the last of the Native American villages that lived in that area. So there's a an archaeological site on that hillside inside the Sally Bell Grove, um, and, uh, uh, and and Sally Bell is the name of the last known kind of living um, member, or the last known living member of that Native American village that had once occupied the Sally Bell Grove. Um, and what's I, the, the importance of it is not the kind of grandeur of the place, or but really the model for how um, the Environmental Protection Information Center and Richard Ginger and Woods and Cecilia Lamon, the way in which they went about stopping the logging of that area became the model for than stopping Pacific Lumber Company's um, uh, timber harvest plans in what became known as Headwaters Forest. And so what they did was they, they had a kind of two-pronged effort or a two-pronged approach. They were going to file a lawsuit arguing that logging this area, this timber harvest plan, violated the California Environmental Quality Act. And simultaneously, because that lawsuit was going to take a while, both at trial, but then also during the appeals process, they were going to incorporate direct action in the woods to slow down and, pre and hopefully prevent and stop Georgia Pacific from being able to carry out its timber harvest plan while the court case was going on. And so they called up Dave Foreman and Mike Rozell from the kind of new Earth organization, Earth First, to come help train them in direct action. They helped train them in nonviolent direct action to protect the trees. And they worked with um, a local, uh, two local attorneys, Sharon Duggan and Jay Muller, to develop the court case and the arguments around, it, along with Woods, he is also very heavily involved with um, developing the legal strategy to kind of underpin this. And um, uh, the the case started in 1983, and in 1985, um, they had finally, the activists had won their cases, and the Trust for Public Land and Save the Redwoods League had purchased part of this land, uh, purchased the Sally Bell Grove and other parts of land to protect it. And so here's this other kind of part, hearkening back to the older model as well. But the court case was super important because the reason why they won their court case was because the appeals court argued basically three things, said that, number one, the California Environmental Quality Act requires agencies to consult with other agencies of interest, in this case, the Native American Commission, whom they did not. Secondly, that the, Cal the California Environmental Quality Act requires all projects to consider the cumulative impacts 
of development in those regions. And third, that just like with the National Environmental Policy Act, um, the California Environmental Quality Act, the California Environmental Quality Act requires the agencies to adequately respond in writing to public comments. And the California Department of Forestry had done none of those three things, mostly because they argued they weren't bound by it. They said, no, 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 we have our own separate thing, the Forest Practice Act. We only have to uh, we only have to abide by those regulations. We don't have to abide by the California Environmental Quality Act. And the judge said, no, 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 no. You, you need to comply with both of them. Um, and so this then right, really gave activists a huge foothold in the court system, right? Because they could now argue around the cumulative impacts of any development and they could argue around the um, procedures, right? There is this set of procedures that the California Department of Forestry had to follow. Um, and if they could um, uh, effectively challenge those, um, they could stop the logging and give time for the older kind of genteel negotiations to take place to buy these places and turn them into public parks. The, f the flaw in their strategy um, we also was exposed during this uh, fight over Sally Bell Grove because in 1985, when the appellate court in California um, ruled against Georgia Pacific and said, no, 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 you got to like do these three things. Well, they then went again and just refiled the same timber harvest plan again, um, trying to uh, with some updates to try to make it fit what the judge said. Because what they were arguing was that there was that the, the Department of Forestry hadn't um, followed the proper procedures, it didn't stop the timber harvest plan for that region because as long as they procedurally fixed the plan, they could then potentially move forward. But by that time, the public land, Trust for Public Land had purchased the land and, and, um, and saved Sally Bell um, from logging. So that's then the kind of model. And, um, and, and it's incredibly important because it, was the, it formed the foundation of almost every single lawsuit against a timber harvest plan for the next uh, next 25 years. Um, do you want me to move on to um, the takeover? You have questions about Sally Bell right now. No, I, I was just about to, to, to ask again about the takeover because that's the other moment in the 1980s where everything kind of changes in regards to this this kind of activism about saving the Redwoods. Yeah, and I, I think the – I mean the, the story of the takeover – of Pacific Lumber Company by Maxim Corporation is um, kind of endlessly fascinating. The the short gist of it is that I loved it. Yeah, it was my yeah. favorite part of the book. It was fascinating. I completely. Agree. I mean, yeah, it's like I mean, it's got um, um, who's the guy on Saturday Night Live? That Stefan, right? It's just, he would say it's got everything. Um, <laughs> it's got junk bonds. It's got Wall Street. It's got trespassers. It's got you know Hurricane Gloria. Um, um, it's so all right in. In the early 1980s, there's this kind of mergers and acquisitions craze in corporate America. Um, and um, Charles Hurwitz, who was a um, leading kind of hedge fund manager, um, one of the kind of, as he describes it, one of the inventors of the hedge fund in the late 60s, early 70s, and then a major player in uh, mergers and acquisitions in the late 70s and early 80s, um, it, it, um, incidentally, he bought this company, McCulloch, who had bought the London Bridge and moved it to Arizona. But so he's this kind of um, interesting character um, based out of Houston. 
And in the early 1980s, he's looking for his next um, hostile takeover kind of target. And he is drawn to um, uh, some analysis of the Pacific Lumber Company. The Pacific Lumber Company had uh, very low long-term debt and an incredibly large inventory, um, the forest. And both of those things made for an attractive target for a hostile takeover because it meant that you didn't have to pay a bunch of outstanding debt. And then you could take out a whole bunch of debt to purchase the company and then sell off all of its excess inventory to pay off your loan. And in this case, that would be Humble, uh, um, the Pacific Lumber Company's Redwood Forest Holdings at the time about a hundred or about two hundred thousand acres um, in Humboldt County, and Michael uh, Charles Hurwitz then works with um, a, a bond trader, Michael Milken, um, uh, who's based out of L.A. at Drexel Burnham, and who's developed this new kind of product that um, is derisively referred to as a junk bond. Um, it's easy money to acquire, but it comes with a high long-term interest rate. So it's kind of perfect for uh, perfect for high-risk takeovers because the plan is always to buy a company, sell off its inventory, repay the debt, and so you don't you don't get dinged too badly for these high interest rates. Pacific Lumber, the Pacific Lumber takeover was the first time that milk and junk bonds were used to um, uh, acquire uh, another company. And so Hurwitz and Milken then call up um, Gene, uh, Gene Elam, who is the president of Pacific Lumber, in this morning in 1985 in September and, and announce that they're going to uh, – that they're making an, uh, an offer um, to purchase all of the stock from Pacific Lumber Company. And the company freaked out and tried to figure out how exactly – if there was a possible way that they could find a white knight investor who might come make a better offer um, or if they could inject some poison pill to kind of stop the takeover. But they wound up not being able to figure it out. And so um, uh, Michael Mil- or Charles Hurwitz and his company Maxim were able to um, purchase Pacific Lumber with about $700 million in junk bond debts. Um, and another interesting kind of piece of the story is that one of the ways that he was able to surprise Pacific Lumber Company um, was that there were a bunch of illegal things going on at the same time. So Ivan Boski um, and Boyd Jeffries, who right, Milken and Jeffries and Boski all get taken down and sent to jail in the 1987 uh, Wall Street insider trading scandal. Um, Hurwitz managed to escape, but Boski and Jeffries were quietly buying up Pacific Lumber stock um, so that there would, as, as Charles Hurwitz was as well, so none of them had to report that their intentions were to purchase the Pacific Lumber Company to try to take it over because there were three separate. Uh, none of them had reached the the ownership levels um, that were required, kind of sending notice to the Securities Exchange Commission. Um, uh, and anyhow, Milken and Boski and Jeffries all go to jail. Hurwitz escapes um, being convicted. And so he owns then the Pacific Lumber Company and shows up at the Scotia 
theater, the company town Scotia in Northern California, in their theater to address his new employees. And somebody asked him, so what are your intentions with this company? And he was irritated at this question. And he said, you know, there's the old, there's the, the golden rule. I follow the golden rule. Those who have the gold rule and shut down kind of the conversation. And so this kind of perverted twist in the biblical golden rule of treating others that you like to be treated have been um, kind of turned in into the Hurwitz model uh, motto of those who have the gold rule. And that kind of shook a lot of the um, Pacific lumber workers kind of in their core of like, oh my goodness, what's going to happen here? And they started to worry that precisely the plan was going to be to come in and sell off all of the the forest and cut down all the trees and leave and leave Scotia and Pacific lumber with nothing. Um, the for the Redwood Wars, the what happened was that this takeover and the kind of scandals around the illegal, illegal moves and this um, he those who have he who has the gold rules comment led activists in Northern California to wonder what's so important about Pacific Lumber Company property. Why is this like guy from Houston? And this junk bond trader from L.A., why are they so interested in acquiring this and so interested in evading the law to do so? And so um, Greg King, who was a local news, uh, uh, a local uh, journalist, um, and Greg uh, and Daryl Turney, who had moved out from New York um, just a year earlier um, uh, and was becoming involved with the um, Sally Bell issue and other kinds of Redwood issues, they decided that they needed to go find out what was out there. And so Greg King um, and a few other folks trespassed onto Pacific Lumber Company property um, to go literally try to like map this private property and figure out why they would be so interested. And they came across um, an enormous, right from their accounts, about 100,000 acre, um, largely intact, old growth and um, second growth redwood forest back on, deep in Pacific Lumber Company property um, that they previously hadn't kind of known about. Um, and so the takeover and the notoriety around the takeover had the effect of drawing activists and especially Earth First and Epic's um, eyes to Pacific Lumber property where they discovered this thing. And it was critical for them because it lies almost half that property lies almost halfway between Redwood National Park and Humboldt Redwood State Park. Um, and so could act as this kind of critical habitat um, that might connect um, the, the Redwood kind of forests of the North Coast. So the stakes of the Redwood Wars change yet again on May 24th, 1990. Can you tell us what happened that day and what the effects of that event were? Yeah, so um, on, in May 24th, 1990, um, Daryl Cherney, who was a, a lead organizer and spokesman for Earth First in Northern California, and Judy Berry, who also worked with uh, Earth First. It was uh, a leader of Earth First in Mendocino County in particular. Um, they were headed to Santa Cruz to speak at a rally and recruit students for the summer. But the idea that emerged was that um, in 1990, which is an election year, that in 1990, um, 
uh, Earth First developed this idea that we should, we really need to draw attention to what's going on in the woods in Northern California. Pacific Lumber Company had started to increase its clear cutting again. Um, they knew that Headwaters Forest was the um, was the target for a lot of their logging because it's where uh, where the vast majority of Pacific Lumber's old growth kind of trees, um, old growth forests lived, um, and they had got this idea that they should create a campaign modeled after. Um, Freedom Summer in 1964 in Mississippi, or Mississippi uh, Summer, where they would bring college students to the North Coast for a summer of rallies and protests and direct actions um, to draw the nation's eye to the last really significant um, redwood forest in private uh, ownership, Headwaters Forest, and, and that they might effectively be able to shame Pacific Lumber or shame the California State Assembly into kind of protecting these, these this this forest this redwood forest on Pacific Lumber Company property, um, and Judy Berry was a former labor organizer. She is from Maryland. Um, uh, went to the University of Maryland for a few years and um, uh, said that she majored in anti-war protesting um, during the Vietnam War. She was a labor organizer with the postal with the, the local post office in Maryland and moved to Northern California and, and had become a carpenter, but got pulled into Redwood issues. And so she had this real kind of like organizing mentality. And Daryl Cherney had this flair for kind of production and for entertainment. Um, he had worked in advertising in New York before. And the two of them were a, a pretty potent kind of um, pair um, leading Earth First in Northern California. So anyhow, on May 24th, 1990, they're in Oakland. They had spent the night in Oakland and were heading to Santa Cruz to speak to students, to try to recruit them to volunteer their summers up in the north in the woods. Um, and they got in their car um, and made it only a few blocks from where they were staying. Um, a, a pipe bomb exploded um, under the driver's seat um, when they were stopped at a stop sign right in front of a local high school. Um, and Barry was wildly screaming in pain. Her pelvis had been shattered from the explosion. Um, her lower extremities and back were riddled with shrapnel. Daryl Turney was dazed and bloody, but was basically okay in the passenger seat. And within minutes, you know, the ambulances and the Oakland police arrived. Curiously, the FBI were already on the scene, um, and uh, uh, which is an unusual kind of development. Um, Cherney and Barry were both taken to the hospital. Cherney was treated, um, released, and taken to jail. Barry was in intensive care. She was placed under arrest in intensive care, and her room was guarded by law enforcement. Um, effectively, she was a prisoner in her hospital room. Um, and the Oakland Police Department and the FBI arrested the pair of activists because they believed that Barry and Cherney had built the pipe bomb and were transporting it so that it might be used um, to blow up a power plant or some other such facility. The police report also curiously stated that the bomb was under the backseat. It was not. I actually went and visited um, the, the Subaru wagon 
Um, it's at the Mendocino County Historical Museum. Um, it, so clearly, the bomb was placed under the driver's seat, um, and it had a timer on it. Um, Barry and Turney wound up filing a civil rights suit against the FBI. Um, and in 2002, a jury convicted three officers of violating the pair's civil liberties, um, including attempting to frame them for the bombing. Um, and they awarded Turney and Barry's estate $4.4 million. Barry had died in 1997 of breast cancer. This event um, was, was critical. Um, on the one hand, not only had the what became known as Redwood Summer, which is what they coined their summer of activism, Redwood Summer lost its two most visible leaders in Cherney and in Barry, but also it had lost Greg King, who like retreated because he was certain, you know, they had been receiving death threats and he wanted nothing to do with it anymore. Um, and so they had lost their three most important leaders. On the other hand, it opened up a void for all sorts of younger um, leaders to to move into the into leadership roles and to form um, and to forge the direction of the Redwood Preservation Movement. And it led to greater cooperation among the Sierra Club on the North Coast and Earth First and Epic and other organizations. They created the Headwaters Forest Coordinating Committee, another nod to uh, the civil rights movement with the student nonviolent coordinating committee, um, and it generated national or support for these local activists from national environmental organizations, um, both monetarily and kind of uh, um, and kind of morally. Um, it also helped lead to kind of greater intensity and violence in these in the over the next especially six years on the north coast um and so this bombing was a real pivotal moment it made people kind of stand up and say whoa things are getting real up here on the north coast um, um and kind of ossified um uh the opposition right the timber companies and the activists grew more wary of each other grew more hostile to one another, and violence continued to erupt um, throughout the next several years. Um, so that's what happened on May 24th, 1990. And, and the reason why there was all of this, I mean, one of the reasons why I think this, this, this happened, um, and we don't know who placed the bomb. Um, it, you know, Daryl Cherney has spent much of the last decade trying to get his hands on DNA testing from the samples taken from the car and from the bomb and trying to figure it out. So maybe one day we'll know, but we still don't know. Um, but regardless, the intensity and the violence was so high because by 1990, um, EPIC, the Environmental Protection Information Center, um, led by Woods and Cecilia Lamman, um, had been so successful in their lawsuits that they had virtually halted the logging of old growth redwoods and ancient redwoods on the North Coast. And so timber companies were frustrated. The courts were frustrated because they were as a deluge of, of court cases and of litigation, and they couldn't handle all of the administrative work that went along with it. And the activists were frustrated because they had to continually file lawsuit after lawsuit after lawsuit to stop individual timber harvest plans um, because they were fighting on these procedural grounds. 
So we've been going for a, about an hour now, so I'm going to kind of combine my last couple questions into one kind of summary question. So eventually, as you describe it in the book, a compromise is eventually reached between activists and loggers and logging companies. What was that compromise? And then kind of zoom out a little bit for us and tell us kind of broadly what the story of the Redwood Wars tells us as historians and as, as the public about um, environmental activism in that time period more broadly? Sure. So in 1996, September of 1996, only 10 years after the Pacific Lumber takeover by Maxim, um, the Clinton administration and the state of California and Pacific Lumber Company signed um, what became known as the deal, the Headwaters Forest Agreement. Um, and the deal, what it was, was the California and the United States paid Pacific Lumber Company $480 million for approximately 7,000 acres of land, about 3,500 acres of which were uh, old-growth old forest. Comes down to about $65,000 per acre. In exchange, Pacific Lumber was required to produce the nation's first multi-species habitat conservation plan under the Endangered Species Act, um, which led to an explosion of habitat conservation plans under Clinton, um, as well as the use of other administrative tools, safe havens, and no surprise policies. And it was a part of the increasing use of executive authority um, to create environmental policy and resolve in, in, in environmental crises. And it was spurred because in 1995, a federal judge um, ruled that Pacific Lumber Company could not ever log this place called Owl Creek Grove, uh, which contained um, uh, adequate evidence of an endangered species living there. The marble beer led a little shoreboard, used this particular forest um, and Pacific Lumber property as a nesting and breeding ground. And so the judge, for the first time, a federal judge used the Endangered Species Act to prohibit logging in perpetuity on, a, on private property. Almost immediately, the Pacific Lumber Company filed a takings lawsuit against the United States, claiming that the United States had confiscated its property regulatory, with a regulatory takings without compensation. The Clinton administration did not want to fight that battle in court. They worried about what if they lost the precedent that that would set in terms of endangered species regulations. And so they came to the negotiating table to work out a deal with Pacific Lumber Company that they hoped would be good for loggers, good for the Marble Murelet, good for the Redwoods, um, um, and good for the local community. And so that's the kind of basic shape of it. And I think nobody was really happy with the deal. Pacific Lumber Company went bankrupt in 2009, and it was bought up by the um, Humboldt Redwoods Company, which is owned by the Fisher family, which started the kind of Gap um, clothing retail, uh, uh, retail kind of giant back in 1969. And so there's this kind of uh, um, truce, but nobody was really happy. And so if I step back then, for me, going through this process of working on this project and this book, I, I really think the Redwood Wars demonstrate how rural people in a far-flung corner of the continent could resist kind of global industrial capitalism. They were sophisticated, bold, and flexible. 
they were, frankly, a model for current Trumpist resistors to draw from. They undermined official and de facto corporatism in California. They transformed the ways um, endangered species laws operated on private land. Um, and they forced the federal courts um, to come to their aid um, um, and use the Endangered Species Act to stop that logging. Um, and they also helped to transform the power of the executive branch to direct um, environmental policy. Um, the conflicts helped convince President Clinton that federal agencies had to develop administrative tools to prevent these conflicts over private landscapes while also protecting endangered species habitats. Um, and I think finally, um, the Redwood Wars were you know, a powerful force during an era when the executive branch accumulated more and more power to dictate environmental policy without legislative or judicial involvement. Um, and I think that's the big national transformation the Redwood Wars were a part of kind of helping bring about. Well, I really enjoyed the book and the, the argument that you make about local action having a large scale national effect was one that I really took to heart and really kind of affected my own um, take on environmental history and the history of environmental activism as well. So, uh, so well done in that regard. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Now, so the book's been out for about a year now. Um, any idea what project you're going to be working on next? Do you have a, another, another topic in mind? Yeah. So I'm working currently on a project. Um, I'm working on an environmental history of Washington, D.C. Um, and I'm focusing the project on the Rock Creek Valley. So inside D.C., Rock Creek National Park, um, cuts through the middle of the city, bifurcates the city east and west. And I'm looking at this project, um, envisioning it as um, trying to understand how people have lived in the Rock Creek Valley for the past 2,000 years um, and what lessons we might draw um, from that from a kind of urban history perspective and an environmental history perspective um, and a forest history perspective. That's one of those those topics, you know, you say uh, environmental history of Washington, D.C., that suddenly you're struck thinking, I can't believe that no one has written something like that before. <laughs> that sounds great. I like, can't wait to read that one, too. Thank you. Darren Spies teaches history at Sidwell Friends School, where he is also the assistant dean of students. And his new book is Defending Giants, The Redwood Wars and the Transformation of American Politics, which came out with University of Washington Press in 2017. Darren, thanks again for talking to us today. Thanks for having me, Steve. 